Hello listeners and welcome to the latest edition of the Unions 21 podcast with me Simon Sapper and me Becky Wright and we're very pleased to have with us right from the off Professor Jane Holgate from the Leeds University Business School Professor of Work and Employment Relations I believe Jane. That's correct yes so wonderful. great to be here thank you. Thank you very much indeed and and the first thing to say is happy birthday to you, C. Happy birthday to you, C. 150 years old. I forgot li- the this card, week. sorry. Well, I, I, I had a cake, but I just couldn't get all the candles on. Um, <laughs> so I ate it. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, a not-so-welcome birthday card from the Office of National Statistics and BIS about trade union membership figures, Becky. Yes. Mind you, 19,000 more members. Got to be good news. 19,000 members. Let me give you some headlines as if I'm reading the news, but I think it's really useful to just kind of put out some of those stats there. So we've got 6.2 million employees now are uh, union members, which is down from 30 million in 1979. There's an increase of 19,000 members from 2016. And if, you know, listeners will remember that we lost something like 200,000 plus last year. So... uh, an increase is welcome, albeit a very small one. 15.2% of employees in the private sector are covered by a collective agreement, compared to 576 in the public sector. And a kind of caveat for everybody to remember there, which is something like 85% of people actually work in the private sector. So that just goes to show how small our mm-hmm. place is in the private sector. Overall, union membership levels did fall down to 23.2%, which is down a 0.3% from last year. But there are more people in work. But there yeah. are more people so. in work. Yes. There are more people in work, therefore the density will change, but then you've got a kind of... There's work for us to do to keep up with the level. Um, and that's uh, due to more people in work, but also women, again, are still more likely to be union members. And also, if you're BA, BAME, you're more likely to be a union member as well. So we kind of start off with a bit of a mixed bag picture, Jane. We just wondered if we could get your thoughts on that from your kind of long history of, <laughs> of, of looking at your kind of union organising, but also kind of what I consider to be the historically underlooked areas of organising. Mm. So um, ethnic minorities and women and kind of that kind of more community sort of based organising. And, and, yeah. and let's not forget that the stats also show that actually more people uh, who are union members have got an, a formal academic qualification. Yeah. Haven't, something like only 15% of union members have no academic qualifications. Yeah. Uh, so therefore, you know, yeah. 85% do have some sort. I think, you know, when we look at headline figures, they always only tell us so much. Um, I think once you start to delve deeper into looking at the figures, um, you know, in a sense, they're slightly more depressing. Uh, particularly if you look back to 1980, and I know that's a long way for, for a lot of people. But just to reflect on that, you know, we had 64% um, of union density in the public sector um, at that time, um, and 50% in the private sector. Uh, so we've seen a huge, huge, you know, change in, in, in density there. But in terms of collective bargaining coverage, it's even worse. Yeah. Because at that time, we had over 80% collective bargaining coverage across all employees across the country down to something like, what, around 26% or something like that now. Um, So that's a huge change over time. And I think you're right in terms of the professionalisation of trade unionism. We are seeing more people who've got um, higher qualifications being uh, more likely to be trade union members, Um, which, you know, in a sense... 
is quite depressing because in the sense that you, you'd imagine that people who are more professional are probably more capable of defending their rights at work than perhaps some people who are in um, you know, less skilled sectors of the labour market, I mean, the more precarious, mm. to use the sort of term that's uh, bandied about these days, the more precarious workers. Um, are actually in a much more vulnerable position and those are the people who actually need union presence but that's where our union identities are actually the lowest. And I'm, I'm struck also by the, 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 the impact that the size of the workplace has on, on union membership. Uh, the statistics reveal that, that actually only uh, 14% in work, 14% of employees in workplaces with less than 50 people are union members as opposed to 36% for workplaces that employ more than, more than 50 people. And However... Go on. <laughs> I was going to provide you the however for the rest of the things Please you were do. going to say. I mean, however, we know that from kind of the Office of National Statistics that 96% of people work in the micro business. So, I yeah. mean, so inescapably, our, our membership base is weakest in the place where there is the most form of need. enterprises. Yeah. The yeah. most need, the certainly. Most, certainly the most need. You know, and it is those small workplaces which are really difficult to organise in lots of ways. Um, Except, again, there is another however. We are seeing, you know, um, and we may come on to have a discussion around this later, we're seeing uh, small unions um, organising in places like TGI Fridays, in McDonald's, in those places which were, in a sense, just left behind by the labour movement because they were considered too difficult to organise. Yeah, these are kind of uh, diamonds in the rush, if you like, or glimmers in the darkness. I mean, it's a, a particular shout-out at the moment, I think, to the Unite members who are organising and have taken industrial action at TGI Fridays yeah. over, over, over removal of tips, yeah. which, yeah. Is, which is really hitting serving staff in the pocket you know two days notice no consultation and so on and it's I mean that and, and we had the muck strike as well which we discussed on the last podcast so it's good to see that there are some signs of renaissance yeah there. but when you're losing 250 pounds a month like some people are working in these restaurants that's yeah. a considerable amount of money for yeah. a young person well when you're yeah. on the bread line no. anyway that is their food exactly what is it well, 40% of young workers have been surveyed to say say that they've skipped a meal yeah. because they can't afford it mm. uh, Crazy. Yeah. And another glimmer, though, I mean, if we could just go off, veer off at, at a tangent <laughs> in terms of looking at the news this week, is, 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 is kind of from Italy. I mean, which at the moment is in the headlines for all sorts of the wrong reasons politically, but actually Italian employees of Amazon have secured the first agreement with the company anywhere in the world. And given that Amazon's been a, a recruitment target for us in the UK for a long time, and it's really worth worth talking about and it's it's through the uh, the, the uni global union affiliate in italy that they've managed to get an agreement about nighttime working about rostering of shifts and and, and so on and hopefully that will that will set dominoes falling elsewhere well i was also reading in the press yesterday that the gmv union are also uh, taking amazon to court over um delivery drivers and whether they're employees or not so yes. following on yes. court cases so they're playing you know an, an interesting role they're trying to organize those workers who are not, a, not yet organized but b a sort of you know, classified by the company as self-employed, mm-hmm. whereas in effect they're actually tied to their hours and forced to work X number of hours a day. Um, so that, I think that's an interesting development taking place there as well. I think so. And what I find really interesting about the, the more legislative approach, I think, no, not legislative, the more judicial approach, so yeah. to get my legal terms right, uh, is that to me it feels like a path that strategically and tactically we haven't really taken... We haven't been as um, forward on that, maybe as American unions yeah. possibly would be, uh, as a re- kind of a, another recourse or another way to kind of get in there and push this through. And I think it's really interesting that um, this is where we're winning and where we're winning and getting kind of um, 
press and coverage about this it's almost like snow snowballing and it's a well it also has a huge potential to affect great numbers of workers so yeah. we saw unison for example you know take the government to court over the tribunal fees yeah. and win over that issue which was so important for so many people because we'd millions seen, of people literally. millions of people we'd seen the numbers of people workers taking tribunal cases drop drastically as a cons of that cons as a consequence of that uh, legislation coming in, the, mm. the, the fees uh, that pe people had to pay up front in order to uh, take a tribunal case. And once that changed, it obviously means that people have that opportunity to get some redress in the courts. Um, now, of course, we'd like trade unions to be much more proactive in making sure those things didn't happen in the workplace. Sure. But given the fact we haven't got you know, collective bargaining in so many workplaces now, that is the only opportunity for a lot of Well, workers. it is, but of course it's increasingly difficult to fund these, these legal Indeed. actions, especially yeah. as in, in the structure of employers becomes yeah. ever more, more convoluted. And crucially, there's you know, the missing link almost, or the weak link, is... Yes, we'll win, we'll win battles in the court, and yes, we'll establish an important platform of rights for workers and working people and, and employees, but does that encourage people to become union members? Are the structures right to encourage people to become union, union members? I think the simple answer to that is no. It generally doesn't. It builds awareness of trade unions, and I yeah. think that's a really important thing. You know, I teach um, young people about trade unions, employment relations courses, um, and the first thing I have to do is explain what a trade union is yes. because yeah. most yes. people are not actually aware. So I think those things are quite good. It raises the profile of unions. So when people do get approached, they then have maybe an understanding that unions do, th do good things yeah. uh, for workers. Uh, but I think it's only part of the story and it really doesn't influence do people know, to join. What, I was watching the um, documentary on the suff suffragettes. Uh, last night and they were talking about when the suff suffragists the, the break between the suffragists and the suffragettes and uh, then I heard snowing in the background as my partner had fallen asleep <laughs> <laughs> I said, was it good? I said well it would be educational for you but you know it's fine uh, And but what was really interesting to me and got me on this train of thought was when they moved to the idea of being arrested as a um a publicity tactic partly you know and it made me think about the legal actions that we, we've been having and how it is that kind of a, a really um good press tactic it's a really good public awareness uh, tactic of what we do and how we do it but it has to be backed up with an ability to turn that into to members and so how do we you know, if we're in this globalized capital world global ownership on one hand with the Amazon workers and yet we're also in small micro businesses. How do we then take these big uh, wins in the courts and translate it to cover almost those types of workers? And on top of all of that, how do we translate that to uh, increasing levels of precarity with more zero hour contracts coming through? How do we, in changes just in terms of uh, industries and sectors where we've not been anymore. Yeah. So, Jane, can you solve all our problems? <laughs> you want to go for Unfortunately not, but I, I do think it comes back to organising. Now, you might think, well, Jane will say that because her area of interest and research... <laughs> of which been... I'm happy to indulge Jane for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> for the last uh, 20 years, has been about organising, and I, it, it is about organising, but it has to be done at the workplace level, the branch level, the community level. It has to be done by members. Mm. This is not something that can be done by full-time officers or general secretaries or even the TUC. Of course, all those people have an important role to play. 
making sure that it's happened. But what we need to be doing is training this army of lay organisers in every workplace. And I think that's what we're not doing. And it's something that unless we do, we will not grow. And the notion of training, it's not training in the traditional sense in terms of classroom or remote or remote learning. It's train, this training by creating the environment in which people are receptive to the ideas, by giving them the tools. And it's, it's fair play to acknowledge the TUC's WorkSmart app uh, that is attempting to bridge the gap between, between individual workers and trade union values and trade union, trade union structures. And it's also important to, to, to work through the legislative route as well mm. and it's a question of bringing those things together to exert maximum yeah. leverage I suppose but I think it's not just about a toolbox of tactics that we can use important though that is I think it's also you know giving people hope and inspiration yeah. mm. and I think what's missing and it's something that we'll maybe get going to talk about later is you know the political education of trade unions actually showing that you know we can win we have won in the past you know it's 150 mm. years mm. you know we're celebrating the birth of the TUC um, we've won so much along that way. I think we need to re-educate people about how we did win those, what those wins meant, yeah. and what they still mean today. And I think you know, combining that political, you know, trade union education alongside those toolbox of tactics to show how we can still do that today yeah. is really important. So if we if we uh, took a step back and actually think before we we, we educate people because agitate educate organise. And we think about actually getting ourselves in, in front of people. Do should we be looking to or continue to look at more of that kind of community kind of organising kind of approach, or see I'm I'm not really a fan of kind of segmenting anything anyway because I kind of feel like we're not in a luxury of picking which yeah. kind of approach we do. We just literally have got to throw everything at it right now. But I. Th- still think there's a conversation for us to have as a union movement around the role of kind of what is community organizing and how we use that to link up to workplaces and how it can help us get our foot in the door is that still something that is a conversation around unions yeah i think so i mean my my good friend uh, jay mcalevy who's written a good book on um, (laughs) on trade union organizing called no shortcuts which effectively you know the um, the message is in the title, there is no shortcut to it. Yeah. Always says to me, she says, Jane, there is no such thing as community organising. We just organise. It's yeah. just organising. The where I disagree with her is I think that given the conversations that we're having here, particularly in the UK, we sometimes need to distinguish between industrial organising and community organising just to have the conversation. Yeah. And so I still think it's valuable to do that. We need to be organising everywhere, yeah. uh, in the workplace, out of the workplace, in different se- in and across sectors, internationally, globally all those different places. Um, so I think, you know, using the language of community organising is still useful, because even for trade union leaders, just to think outside of the workplaces that they're operating in, where their collective bargaining takes place, is quite an important thing to do. So I continue to use the term community organising, because I think it, it gives a different message. I think, I think that the notion of community is really important. I agree with you. It's important to differentiate community from industrial or community mm. from, from workplace. But also, if you think about the communities in which people live and, and live their lives... That's a useful way into younger people who are often taught, spoken of living their life in on online communities. Yeah. And given that, that age is probably the main demographic now between between people who are union members and people who aren't, a major, yeah. major, major factor. How do you reach out to young people? How do you make trade unions attractive? How do they, not attractive so much, but just part of the everyday landscape that, of course, you would be a member. Why wouldn't you be? Yeah, and the way you do it, I think, you go in through their community, whatever that community yeah. be. Mm. And, you know, 
you know, I, my background is in geography, so I often talk about places and spaces and communities because I think those things matter. Um, but, you know, just spending some time thinking about what we mean by community is quite important because it could just be a WhatsApp group. There yeah. is a community based around a WhatsApp group. Yeah. But it could be the people in your street. It could be, you know, the... Tr- the commuters that you travel with mm. it could be your workplace it could be any of these different communities but it's about trying to think uh, i suppose you know using that horrible term outside of the box in terms of where we might organize um because it doesn't have to just and it it can't just solely be the, the workplace these days is, is it is it kind of a is is the problem a lack of imagination a lack of flexibility or a lack of will um i think it's probably all of those (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what i would really like i'd like to get all trade union leaders general secretaries in a room for a week where we actually had these conversations these really deep conversations about change because you know i listen to lots of trade unions speak and they say what we need to do is what we need to do is and it's this constant refrain and i think we actually Stop thinking about, you know, just saying that we need to do it and actually start to do it. And I think spending some time in a room where we actually had some really deep discussions about some of these issues would be really helpful. It's a bit like in our last podcast, Gavin Kelly was talking about he wants a solidarity box that every time a general secretary uses the term solidarity but doesn't back it up with kind of resources, you've got to put money in the jar. You've got to put £100,000 into an organising, an organising bank account. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm happy to help. I want to administer that. But I mean, I think there's also that um, for me, who didn't have... He doesn't come from a trade union family. He didn't have an over trade union background when I first got into the movement. I was a community based organizer. I feel like that we're still not talking or having that kind of open conversation about like the roles of trades councils in being a place where people can kind of come together and learn about organizing or being part of a wider community that talks about the workplaces, you know, the not just unemployment centres, but also kind of worker centres as well. And, you know, the more we kind of continue and try to kind of reach as many people as possible, we have the digital offer, yeah, but we've also got to think about that kind of face-to-face offer as well. Otherwise, what are we and how do we... Well, if I could just say something about the research I've been doing with Unite um, over the last five years into Mm. the Unite Community Initiative... And for those people who don't know, Unite set up a, a, a membership for people who are not in trade unions. So this could be people who are retired, students, um, carers, and people who are unemployed. Um, and one of the things that I've been interested in is actually speaking to those Unite community members. And I've interviewed quite a lot of them, up to 50 of them. And one of the questions I ask is, why are you joining a trade union when you're not in work? It seems a very strange thing to do. Mm-hmm. And the answer that they give me is that they want to feel part of the union movement. They've often been part of the union movement, but are now retired, um, but still feel they've got an awful lot to give, whether that's in terms of advice, training, um, or just supporting industrial disputes, for example. Um, and there's 20,000 people who join Unite Community, and I think there's a huge reservoir of support for trade unions out there that unions could tap into if they want yeah. to. So Unite have started this initiative, and, you know, in a sense, it's only got so far as yet. But I think there's huge potential in there in tapping into these different groups in society. People want to be part of the trade union movement and be active um, and are not yet in, are not in work for various Indeed, reasons. I mean, I think you're right, there is a reservoir. And, mm. and 
uh, I think of my old uh, my old union, the CWU, we have a, a, a pool again, about 20,000 retired members, for, for example, who, who are not just, who have joined the retired member section because they want to stay involved, they've got something to, to give, and mentoring, un, informal mentoring has always been a big part of trade union organisation, yeah. but how do you get people from that pool, from that reservoir, out into the, the areas in which in which people are swimming around looking for a life yeah. raft, maybe, or looking for guidance, or looking for, for directions. Bad analogy. Well, you, no, but, no, no, um, I, no, I'm, um, I tell you what is going, <laughs> continue to go through my head, is how lucky I was to be part of the TSSA's travel train team, because we had a doctor shop, where all of our... Reps, yeah, you did, I remember that. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. remember the doctor shop. But we did that, where we encouraged our branch secretaries to adopt a local travel agency shop. And they, they were, you, we signed them up to it. No, but it's similar to what you're sort of saying. Well, except, you know what except, I mean? except okay, so TSA, tell me, talk me through this. TSA branch secretaries adopted a shop. Yeah. Right? But what, we, but what if it wasn't a shop they worked in? No, no, they, they didn't work in that shop. That's the point. They okay, were in how the, did they get time off to go and adopt the shop and recruit the people in They there? did it in their spare time. They did it in their spare time. So, okay. so basically, what, <laughs> so basically <laughs> the whole idea was there were five organisers. We had to cover 22,000 workers. How on earth could we do that? Well, we couldn't do that. What is the biggest untapped resource or the biggest resource for a union? It, the, it's reps. It's, it's members. It's, it's the whole thing. So what could we do? There was literally nearly a shop in every sort of major and minor town in the country where there was most likely going to be a train station as well. So we knew we kind of had ticket offices in most of those, although now probably they wouldn't have ticket offices. Mm. So we we said to our um, our reps, actually it wasn't just branch secretaries, it was blanket out to all reps, who would like to adopt a shop to help us and you go in and we'd give them a bit of training and we'd get them to go to a shop and talk to people about being part of the union. Now, we started that initiative actually just as we were moving into a new workplace. So it didn't really continue, I think, as, as it could be. But as a union kind of trying to shift its resources and its membership to where it needs to i think it was a good model of how a union could do that i agree and i, I think it's a, a great success and a great tribute to you and your your colleagues great tribute to me as a great tribute because 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 unions rarely adopt such a wholehearted approach to organizing yeah. usually, usually there's there's a tension between servicing and and all, and all the rest of it the model i i, I look at is speakers in schools Right, yeah. which has been a long-running thing about getting trade unionists and trade union values in front of school age kids, yep. which now, of course, go, go, goes up to 18. And the problem you, you, oft, you often get is, first, is, first of all, the spokespeople can't, aren't available, haven't got time off, which is where the community members, the retired members in the CWU, whatever, yep. could complain. That's, that, that's something they could, they could easily do. But then you think about the barriers, the barriers of getting into schools, very you know, minority of which are now under local authority control. Uh, okay. You can you can find a way in through through the business studies curriculum, the economics curriculum, the history curriculum, the government and politics curriculum. You can you can find citizenship, citizenship, right? You can you, you can find a way in, but then when you get there, you get get hold, you get through to to young people, who, as you said, Jane, my experience is the same as yours. You have to explain what a union is and, yeah. uh, and what it does. Then they've got they've got. Work experience has been scrapped because of budget, budget cuts, mm. so they've got no experience of the world of work. Career service has been absolutely decimated, so so that they are either unavailable or, or in, inaccessible. One young person I, I met recently said to me, "It's like there's school and there's life, and there's a river between the, between the two, and there's no bridge to cross it." And I thought, 
I mean, that, yeah. you know, Quite that's powerful. A, that again, is powerful. But again, going back to Unite Community, so what they've been doing within Unite Community, they've got a subsection within that called uh, Uniting Schools, and they've been training Unite Community members to actually do exactly as you said, mm-hmm. go into schools and deliver, you know, you know, half-day training on what trade unions are. And it's been incredibly successful, and they've I covered bet. loads and loads Excellent. of schools doing that. And, of course, the, you know, lots of retired people and people who are unemployed, I've got some time on their hands to do this. Um, and so it's 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 you know proving to be a really interesting initiative and really successful. So you know the more you could spread that around, you know, Unite's now got something like eighty branches, Unite community branches across the country, um, and these people are organising on also a whole range of different issues, whether that's zero hour contracts, supporting Unite industrial members where they're on strike. Um, or it could be about just offering support for benefit claimants mm. um, or people who have been sanctioned or, you know, the bedroom tax and supporting workers through that. They've managed to, you know, get loads of um, compensation as a consequence or have people's benefits reinstated through the work that they've been doing through their community branches. So there's huge potential there. It's just it needs to be much more. And it's just this is just one union and it's it's almost feels like a trial um, yeah. rather than something that's been you know really pushed out as wide as it might be and also is it uh, the other thing I sort of always have in the back of my head is when we look at trade union membership figures historically um there is a there are historically there have been groups of workers that have been excluded from the labor movement in various different ways and for you know not just lots of reasons, I think yeah. prejudice is being the kind of the main one. And so at the time when, for example, we had like a million people who were in service, most of those were women. Yeah. We didn't organise we didn't organise them. And part of this kind of transition from our strength almost to kind of the position we're in now is that kind of change over to jobs that were also kind of traditionally seen as kind of women's work as well or kind of lower value work and that kind of inability for us to kind of grasp it and organize it and move all of our sort of things around such that now when people are going into the world of work and they're thinking well where who who do we if we did want to join an organization like a union who do we join who's relevant yeah what you know i know a lot of my friends have said well if they're not in the public sector which union should i join and i'm a bit like uh well it's difficult to say isn't that's, it? Yeah. yeah i mean yeah. for lots of different reasons because i don't want to annoy all of our different but you know i'm like well um i don't know maybe this union would cover it maybe that you this union would cover you and i think there's also that 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 ease of joining is not just about how many clicks it takes you to join, but it's also that kind of very clear sense of who you join and why you might Yeah, join but I also think it, it highlights the fact that, you know, when people join a union um, in those circumstances without people around them, mm-hmm. what is it that they're actually joining? Because yeah, we do yeah. know that, you know, in a sense, they're just joining for insurance purposes. Yeah. Um, and often the trade union, you know, is busy organising a different sector of the labour market and not that particular one. So, you know, they may find that they've joined a union when they've got a problem at work, fine, actually difficulty getting any representation which then gives them a negative you know Mm. perspective on what trade unions really Mm. are because they're not actually going to be there to be able to help them in the workplace 
Um, so it's it's another issue. It's not just about joining. It's about actually being part of something collective as well. And this is this brought to mind the conversation we had when we were launching the young um, people's um, the young professional workers in the hourglass economy and the work that you and Mel and Andy have done on young organising young workers and innovation around that. And you were talking about the um, the bakers union, yes, stuff. And what, see, it's what I found really interesting about the McDonald's stuff is that it's the bakers union that's, that's done it, and they're still kind of called the bakers union, but increasingly also it's a bit more food service union or kind of yeah. There's also that kind of slight change to language, which is making it easier for people to identify yeah. with the bakers i mean i think you know if we could replicate what the bakers unions doing across the whole of the union movement we'd be actually in a really different you know position at the moment they're doing some really exciting stuff you know they're a tiny union 20 25,000 members i think something like that um but they're letting young people just organize in the way they want to organize so it's not about saying this is what needs to be done Mm. they're saying to young people what do you want to do they're putting people in contact with each other across different workplaces rather than trying to organize each individual workplace they say let's gather in let's get together in a town as young people working in fast food working in mcdonald's those sort of places and saying what shall we do and you know they've got roving pickets going around to different fast food outlets uh, supporting each other you know finding places to organize in themselves because they've not got facility time so they've you know they've not got offices they've not got places but they meet in cafes and bars and you know, people's homes. And I think they're just showing that, you know, there's different ways that we can organise within the labour movement. And, you know, if you give young people the opportunities, they can take these opportunities and build. You've anticipated the next question that was on the list, which is if there was one thing that the trade union movement should do, what, oh. what, what, what would it be? Would there be another thing that... Uh... Oh, one thing that... Um, I just think, you know, the union movement just needs to... A step out of its silos you know we know each union operates within its own structures and and forms of organization but i'd like ideally i suppose if we would have this blank canvas yeah. i'd like to just to see one union you know but with lots of little sections within that union specializing yeah um <laughs> more yeah. like the wobblies the 1930s you know yeah. wobbly sort of model um where people fitted in there was just one union movement so people actually felt they were part of the same family rather than these different ones but of course within that we could have specializations you know whether that be aviation Mm. or whether it be food or logistics um but it meant that people would be involved in one thing and i think there might be better um ways of thinking about doing things rather than just getting stuck within the structures that we currently have so that's what i'd like to see anyway well, that's you know that's I think I think that's a rallying call actually, and I think that's this week specifically because of the 150th anniversary. I think it's 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 Indeed. right to see that as as, as a, an important strategic ob- objective. Whether it looks exactly like that or it is that in practice, I, I don't think matters. Are there are there people uh, who who are if you like rising stars in in the world of, of academic research into industrial relations, employee relations, and so on. Who should we look out for? Who 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 should we look up and and, and read avidly? Um, well, my colleague Andy Hodder, you've yeah. already uh, been you've already mentioned here today. He's doing some great work with um, trade unions and young workers. So he spent a lot of time working with in PCS, um, Public and Commercial Services Union. So he's doing some really good stuff, and you know he's a young academic. So I think he's up and coming. My colleague Charles Omni at Leeds, uh, he's been doing, uh, done some writing on uh, Chinese uh, unions and the labour movement in China, oh, wow. which I think, 
you know, might make an interesting mm. uh, podcast as well sometime in the future. My colleague, Joe Grady, who's at Sheffield, who's done lots of stuff on pensions and particularly around the dispute within the University Colleges Union, um, done some really interesting stuff. Mark Bergfield, who's done work on migrant workers and organising, he's a current PhD student at Queen Mary. So lots of interesting stuff around my organising migrant workers, which is where my interest is as well. So quite a few people that I think it's worth keeping an eye on. That's that's good. I mean, they, you can't, listeners, you can't have better signposting. Yeah, it's fairly easy now to Google that. <laughs> so, Jane, thank you ever so much for, for, for spending time, time with us. And, and thank you for your ongoing contribution of fortitude and, and making us think about things that sometimes we some of us put in boxes and yeah. shove, in, shove, in the, shove in the spare room. Um, I think we, we, you know, before we before we leave you, listeners, uh, uh, just a reminder that the Unis Twenty One work continues. Uh, our work on Collective Voice is about to take off very much over over, over the summer, uh, with a launch event uh, towards the end of June. Yeah, begin at the beginning of July. Uh, as ever, if you like if you like what you've heard, if you don't like what you've heard, if you agree, if you disagree, then we would love to hear your views. You can email us at info at unions twenty one dot org dot uk. We need you to be part of the discussion and the uh, and the conversation. We also need to say a big thank you to the University of Glasgow, whose support has made this this particular podcast uh, possible. Thank you very much uh, to to them. Uh, we couldn't have done this one without your support. That's that's for sure. So it just leaves me uh, to say thanks very much for listening, and we hope to see you next time in a couple of weeks when I think we're going to be talking particularly about digital communications. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, yes unions in the digital world. So it's I think it's a great kind of bookend with Jane <laughs> to kind of, kind of go from face to face to digital. So see you then. So. So from myself, from Jane, from Becky, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Union's 21 podcast was supported by the University of Glasgow uh, and was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. The production assistant was Henry Skews. It was a Makes You Think production.